Okay, Revelation chapter 1. We had a break last Sunday night due to our officer installation. I want to say before we, we're going to read uh, as indicated verses 9 through 20, the glorious description of Christ. And just a word about this wonderful juxtaposition of the one, and, and this, this reflects what we just sang, but in verse 6, you read, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And you'll see this same theme as we uh, started off our worship from chapter 5, that the lamb is worthy because he was slain. The slain lamb is the one worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, right? He, he gained, and this comes out beautifully in that chapter the only one worthy to take the scroll. The scroll represents the unfolding of all history. And the one who opens it is the one who will literally roll out history by his sovereign action. And there's only one worthy of that rule. And it's the one who shed his blood, which is an amazing statement that worthiness is found in the humble sacrifice of yourself. That's what makes a worthy king, is the one who would sacrifice himself. And you may recall how Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2, when he says he did not regard Christ, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out, became a servant, uh, and even to the point of death on a cross, therefore he is highly exalted. Why is he highly exalted? Because he didn't regard equality a thing to be grasped. Because he humbled himself, even to the point of death. Therefore, he gets to rule the world because he perfectly reflects the character of God. And as we just sang, this will be our theme forever, forever rejoicing in the Lamb who's slain because the Lamb who's slain constantly reveals to us, this is who God is. This is who God is. And we'll rejoice in that forever, this glorious, almighty, sovereign God who would use his sovereignty, who would use his lordship and authority to lay it down for the sake of others. There is no beauty like this in all religions, all philosophies, any thought of any human being ever. There is nothing that approaches the beauty and wonder of this glorious juxtaposition of death and rule. So here in Revelation 1, uh, right, you know, bunched up with this statement of the one who has freed us from our sins is this glorious revelation of Christ uh, that 
causes John to fall like a dead man and would do that for us as well, of course. Um, so this, this wonderful mix of death and glory. Um, and we'll see how this impacts our lives as well in, in this passage. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Sperna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are, that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's the reading of God's Word. So first of all, uh, we have, we're going to look at John's description of his situation in 9 through 11, and then uh, the, the vision of the Son of Man, which is divided in what John saw, verses 12 through 16, and then what was said to him in the remaining verses. So two major sections, his description of the situation, 9 through 11, and then the Son of Man, and that part is divided into seeing and hearing. Okay. Now, what's fascinating is this description of tribulation, kingdom, and endurance. And notice... They are in Christ Jesus or in Jesus. So the indication is that if you are in Jesus, you are tightly bound in this triad of kingdom, endurance, and tribulation. That this marks our lives in this world. Kingdom, tribulation, and endurance. You're familiar with other passages that talk about the necessity of tribulation. Acts 14, 22, Paul is encouraging the churches that he has planted uh, earlier in chapter 13 and earlier in 14 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Romans 8, 17 that we studied uh, last year. If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The indication is it's a necessity to suffer with him if we're to glorify, uh, be glorified with him. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 4, when we were with you, that means when they were first preaching to them, and they were only in Thessalonica for three weeks before they got thrown out. But when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. They weren't painting a beautiful picture of how easy your life is going to be. They were warning him from the start. If you come to Christ, if you identify with him, you will suffer. And yet they came and they embraced him because they, they couldn't do without this treasure of Christ who died for sins. And then 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So here is the great paradox because if you weave these three words together, you have a picture of the church's reign on earth that's going to be shown throughout Revelation. Our reign, that is the kingdom in which we reign on this earth, will be laced with tribulation and endurance. That's not the kingdom the Jews were expecting, I guarantee you, right? That's the mystery of the kingdom, that we don't look like kings and queens, especially in our worst suffering, especially as we are brutally killed throughout history. But this is the way that we reign in Christ Jesus. Uh, I was associated or read some in uh, a group of people that pushed that we would win politically as Christians. You know, we went through the Christian right movement in the 80s. Um, be a Christian government, be a Christian nation, and you'll find out that none of that is in Revelation. Of course, they lived in the Roman Empire. How could they even think about that? But it's not even described as uh, outlined some kind of political takeover. It's these words, these words describe what their life is. I actually heard one man say, if the church doesn't win on earth a wide, comprehensive, central influence and control, then Christ loses. So he's reigning in heaven, and if it doesn't show itself in, in absolute Christian influence that basically takes over the world, then Christ is lost. That was the view. But as G.K. Beale, a uh, professor at Westminster, writes in his commentary, the exercise of rule in this kingdom begins and continues only as one faithfully endures tribulation. That's a beautiful statement. The exercise of rule in this kingdom begins and continues only as one faithfully endures tribulation. This is the formula for kingship, faithful endurance through tribulation. 
is the means by which one reigns in the present with Jesus. Their being identified with Christ is the basis for the trials which confront them. Their identified with Christ is also their ability to endure the trials and to participate in the kingdom as kings. This paradoxical form of rule mirrors the manner in which Jesus exercised his authority in his earthly ministry, even from the cross, and we're to follow his path. So, like Jesus beginning kingship on this earth, Revelation reveals that the saint's reign consists in overcoming, that's the, that word is repeated in every letter to the seven churches, he who overcomes. But they overcome by not compromising their faithful witness in the face of trials. So a, di a very different kind of reigning that martyrs have conquered, see? Martyrs have reigned with Jesus and in Jesus' likeness. You can see, let's look at two passages, Philippians 3, where Paul wants to identify with Christ so closely. You know, he, he said, I've suffered the loss of everything for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss, as dung, rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then in verse 10 of Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, he's not saying uh, in the first place that I may die like him, you know, be conformed to his death in that regard, but he means that my life will be cruciform. My life will take on the shape of his death so that I will die to myself. I will sacrifice myself to, for the sake of others that they may come to know Christ. And so I will then uh, be, share his efforts and become like him. My life will look like him and like his life when he died, okay? It's an amazing statement. But by doing that, Paul would say, this is the way we reign on earth. This is the way we exhibit the glory of Christ on earth when we lay down our lives. Earlier in our, or, uh, earlier in our Bibles, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, this is, a, I'm sure, a familiar passage to some of you, but beginning in verse 7, Paul says, we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're just jar, crumbling jars of clay that have this treasure of the gospel. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus 
may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, that's the same thing as Philippians 3, isn't it? Conform to his death. And that as, as I am giving myself up to the sufferings of this world in order to make known Christ, then his life is manifesting itself in me. The paradox, his life manifests itself when I sacrifice myself to others, right? And that's the reign. That's the reign of a Christian. Not political power, but personal sacrifice, church sacrifice. And we have to ask ourselves, what's that going to look like as a congregation for, for, for uh, First Pres? It makes me think fort, you know, but First Pres, uh, how is that going to manifest itself as we reach this city or reach further you know, into the whole world. What does this call us to be and to do? So in some way, uh, we will show as part of Christ that in Jesus, we have kingdom, tribulation, and endurance. So um, Paul, have, John goes on here uh, to... Well, you could say more about what well, I did say about the, the conquering. But you'll see, for instance, in Revelation 6 and Revelation 7, the martyrs who then are clothed in white, they're obviously the ones who have conquered uh, and overcome the temptations of this world so that they gave themselves up for Christ. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to those beautiful passages in Revelation 6 and Revelation 7. So he's on this island. It is likely uh, a prison island, an island of isolation uh, within the Roman Empire. And he is on the Lord's Day. In the spirit may mean that he was kind of in a a trance in the spirit or kind of uh, controlled in special ways by the spirit. And he says on the Lord's Day, it may mean, it's possible that that means first day of the week, Sunday, but it may mean the day of the visitation of the Lord, the day of the Lord's manifestation. Uh, he calls that the Lord's day. We just can't be sure. <clears throat> but hearing the loud voice like a trumpet brings to mind the trumpet sound of, of uh, Mount Sinai when God spoke there and there was a loud trumpet sound. So there's an echo of the speaking of God uh, on Mount Sinai. And here that same Lord, that same God, is speaking to John, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he says to write this down, this uh, calls to mind that, that Moses was to write down uh, the, in, in Exodus 17, 14, or Isaiah in Isaiah 30, he's to write down, or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 36, to write these things down. <clears throat> um, so all of this has uh, Old Testament overtones constantly. As we said before, there are hundreds and hundreds of references to the Old Testament in Revelation. So then he says, I turned, and then we go into this uh, next section to 
see the voice, as he says literally here. And turning, I saw the lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The one like the Son of Man uh, calls to mind, as we've already seen, the uh, the one in the, the the vision in Daniel chapter seven, when one like the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom. So. That's derived from uh, Daniel 7. And then this description that we have, listen how much it's like the vision in Daniel chapter 10, beginning with verse 5, when Daniel saw uh, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. His body was like beryl, B-E-R-Y-L, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So all of these images uh, are, are drawn from, I mean, it is what he saw, but there's this continuity of the manifestation of God on earth. In that case, an angel appearing before him, and in this case, none other than God himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Even the, the hairs on his head were white like wool. That's a picture of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. So that's an indication that this one was uh, none other than God who is appearing. And in verse 8, uh, I'm sorry, in, when, when Christ says later in, uh, that I'm the first and the last, this, of course, is a statement of deity. So we have here a glorious picture of the God-man manifesting himself uh, to John. The feet indicate an armor of war and judgment that tramples down wicked forces. His eyes... Uh, are the piercing eyes that know all things. Nothing can be hidden from them. And all of this is meant to be read together as one piece. Uh, the, the sword coming from his mouth is not an emblem of salvation, but it's one of judgment. Because in 1915, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And so, as Daniel Johnson writes in his commentary, these symbols are not what Jesus looks like, okay? That's not, that's not what's <laughs> what we're supposed to get from this. They're describing what he is, okay? Now that's hard. Not what he looks like, but what he is. His identity as the searcher of hearts. His identity and having boundless wisdom. The perfect priest standing for his people before the Father. The perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. Revelation's visions show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. So this is the reality of the holy, majestic, sovereign one 
who, has, who is in the midst of his church, his broken, suffering church, yet he is in the midst of her. He has her in his powerful right hand, and he is ruling the nations and bringing judgment upon those who persecute the church. That's who this is. And it's interesting that every part of this description of, or parts of this description are the entrance to every address to every church. For instance, chapter 2, verse 1 to Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then verse 8 to Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Pergamum, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So you see, this description informs his address to every one of the churches. So this description is, is to search the churches, but then it is also to establish the protective, majestic one that ultimately will bring all things to the good of the church. So it searches the church, but it also he will protect the church and he will rule the world uh, for the sake of his church. Um, now, finally, the words. He starts off by saying that he is the first and the last and the living one. Uh, again and again in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 41.4, Isaiah 44.6, uh, and Isaiah 48.12, God, as he's describing his sovereign control over all things, says this again, that I'm the first and the last, the first and the last. This is an indication that he is the one who controls history. And for Jesus to say this, for the Son of God to declare this, he is saying, I am the one who rules all history. I'm the first and the last. And that's why you don't fear John, because I'm control in control of all history and in all the sufferings and persecutions uh, and tribulations that ch the church endures, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who rules history. So this is the comfort uh, that we have uh, in his, his lordship. And then the encouragement as the living one who died and now is alive evermore, uh, that he, by defeating death, he now has the keys of death. We're not owned by death anymore. He owns death, right? Death had us by the throat. Death ruined us. Death not only brought us to an end in this world, but would send us to everlasting judgment. But he has... Uh, won the day and defeated death and defeated judgment. And now he has the keys of death and uh, Hades. Now, in the fray, the, the comfort that we have the, in this is to always, be, always bear in mind these two images. And we'll talk about the, what the angels refer to in a minute. But these two beautiful images that he, the mighty one, the controller of all history, the one who's ruling the world and will defeat all of our enemies, he dwells in our midst the, because the lampstand is the church. 
this beautiful picture for these suffering saints who seem to be losing things left and right and in the description that rolls out in, in Revelation, the most horrible tribulations break out upon, in the world and upon the church. And yet he is in the midst of the church sustaining it by his power. Uh, that is our comfort. And it's our hope that we can be transformed as a church. It's our hope that we can be used as a mighty instrument in his hand in the church is that this mighty one described dwells in the midst of the church, in the midst of the lampstands. And the other picture that he has, whatever the angels mean, they represent the church and he holds the church in his powerful right hand. It cannot be, uh, nothing can happen to us outside of his power. Nothing controls us but the mighty hand of Jesus, uh, the one who died for us. So a magnificent description that is to comfort the church uh, that, that was suffering so terribly in, in that day. So let's talk a little bit about the seven stars because it's a difficult um, phrase, uh, a difficult thing to interpret. It says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. <clears throat> and I don't want to spend too much time, but every commentator spends some time here one interpretation is that angels represent the pastors of the church or else the messengers, because angel means messengers, the messengers who bring the letters to the churches. Um, the reason they want to move in that direction is that he's addressing it to the angel. Every church, he addresses the angel of that church, which is unusual. It, to us. So you want to associate it closely with that church and say, well, maybe this represents the leaders of the church, the pastor of the church, or the messenger who brought this to the church. But angel 57 other times in this uh, book means angel, right? And it's very odd. Why didn't he just say that? Why didn't he say the pastors or, or whatever? Then you go the direction of angel and many have, and uh, some look to, well, maybe there's a guardian angel for each church, an angel that represents each church. But how can you address an angel and say you and associate the angel with the evil of the church? That doesn't seem to make sense. Okay, let us pray. No. <laughs> um, so I side with... Uh, quite a few uh, commentators, not all, but uh, some, who would, um, who would move this, uh, who would say that it's an unusual expression, but that this is a way, this heavenly, uh, the, 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 just like when we are praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there's a reference to angelic obedience, right? How eager they are and quick they are to obey. Let us obey like the angels do. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's a heavenly reference uh, to these angels. And uh, like G.K. Beale would teach this, that it's to re remind the believers already a that a dimension of their existence is heavenly. Just like we open the service with that 
the, the fact that we are joined to the heavenly worship uh, so that our existence is heavenly and our real home is not simply on this earth. So we keep a sense of their heavenly existence and identity uh, by pointing to the angels of the seven churches. Uh, also, you'll see how the church is to imitate the heavenly worship of chapter uh, four and five and throughout uh, the, these pictures of heavenly worship are woven throughout Revelation to keep showing the church this is the worship you should be engaged in. This is the worship that you're a part of even on earth. You're, you have an earthly life, but in a sense, <clears throat> you have this heavenly life. And as we said this morning, Paul talks a lot about that, of our being raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. Our life is hidden with Christ at the right hand of God. This is a regular thought in the New Testament. So George Ladd writes along these lines, this, the, the angels represent the heavenly or supernatural character of the church. Uh, Kittle, another commentator, sav- says that uh, these are heavenly societies under, in his right hand. It shows that, that the church is a heavenly society under his guidance and protection more than just temporal organizations, he sees their divine character and addressing them as angels makes them conscious of their divine character. So it's really a glorious picture, both that we're in the right hand of Christ and that we have this spiritual, heavenly, divine character about us as the people of God because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And we're already a part of heaven. It's, it's really a spectacular uh, description of the church. And we don't deserve to be a part of this, but by Christ's death, we are made a part of it. And we're the children of God. And we're reigning on earth. And we have a heavenly character that is manifesting itself <clears throat> in this world. As I prayed earlier uh, and You'll hear me regularly come back to this in 2 Corinthians, but this astounding statement that we're being, uh, trans, we're being transformed from glory to glory. And that means now, you know, your life is becoming more and more a manifestation of glory because you're the temple of God. What else is going to happen when the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you manifest the glory of God? <clears throat> I want to close with another quote by Bill. This initial vision shows that Christ is standing in complete authority over human history, but he does so standing amidst the churches, which are undergoing all sorts of trials and even apparent defeats, as some of the churches would indicate that he writes to. This shows that the Son of Man is in a present position of sovereignty among the weak and suffering churches of his kingdom. And it brings into sharper focus the unexpected form in which the kingdom that Daniel spoke of has begun to be established in this world. Because it's spoken of as a kingdom in Daniel. And it's clear that John is saying this kingdom is here 
But this kingdom is one of kingdom and tribulation and endurance, supported by the sovereign Christ who dwells in the midst of the lampstands and holds the church and its heavenly life in his hands. Wonderful vision. And this will inform the whole rest of Revelation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this glorious revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what it means to us personally, how it can support us, give us a vision of who we are and who Christ is to us and how our lives are hidden with him, safe in his hand. He dwells in our midst. He is supplying us with his spirit. He is transforming us by his mighty power. And because he is the sovereign one, so gloriously portrayed here, nothing can stop him from his saving work for his people, his transforming work for his people and his church what he means to do for us and how he means to use us as instruments in this world as heavenly glory breaks out into this dark world through the life of this body of people and throughout your church, throughout the world. Lord, we thank you for your glorious work in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.